welcome to our new series on the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host Dr Farah Khalid and I am a consultant counselling psychologist and assistant professor in clinical psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy. Whilst I've specialized in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies, I also weave in cognitive behavioral therapeutic methods as well in my work. And you can learn much more about me in the episode notes, so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me in my background. I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or um, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma and I feel really honoured that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them and I feel very privileged for that opportunity and that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write into us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us 
on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. So, Dr. Fayez, I was reading this book and the book is very much about a father-son relationship. I couldn't help but wonder where the author Roald Dahl was coming from as he was writing this because we know from his life story that he lost his father very early on in his life. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yes, I certainly do. Um, I, I, I kind of extracted quite a bit of symbolism for me in my mind about um, Roald Dahl, his own history and his own wounds. Um, so the first place that we could perhaps start is, you know where Danny um, loses his mum? So in the story, Danny's four months old, as you mentioned, he loses his mother and it's just him and his dad. And so his dad has to become both a mother figure and a father figure for Danny. Uh, all of the care for a four-month-old baby, it's not an easy business, you know, taking care of an infant and his dad's doing all of that. So that struck me in a way where Roald, Dahl, Roald Dahl's own personal history is where he lost his father when he was three years old. Um, his elder sister Astri passed away at seven and shortly they lost their dad. Um, and I would imagine it was grief that really took Roald, Dahl, Roald Dahl's father. Um, Roald Dahl, of course, has no memories. Of, he says himself that he has very few memories before the age of eight, um, which is very usual. It's quite common for us not to have very, very early memories, although there are lots of people who do remember um, events from, you know, three, four years old. Um, but it sort of suggests that maybe Roald Dahl has not, um, you know, processed some of the earlier trauma of losing his father at three. So uh, I wondered whether Roald Dahl's inner world has been projected out in some way in Danny's story. Um, perhaps, perhaps Roald Dahl... Um, had an unconscious wish that his father had actually lived and not his mum. So the reason why I'm saying that is because, so, you know, Roldal's kind of thinking about this story, but about Danny, a boy, um, he's lost his mum, but he's actually with his dad, and the whole story centres around him and his dad. So I wondered whether actually that could be perhaps a wish fulfilment in some way mm-hmm. of Roldal filling that gap or that void Mm. of not having memories of his dad and although I mean I'm not saying suggesting in any ways that he didn't love his mother and he I mean we know that he wrote lots of letters to his mom didn't he when he went away to boarding school he was very close to his mother but I somehow have a feeling that this could be a wish fulfillment projected into the story of, of Danny and his dad and I, I, we're also aware that he lost his own daughter, I believe, when mm-hmm. she was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if there is something also about that in, in here, would you say? Uh, kind mm-hmm. of fulfillment of an adventure, things they could have done together. I understand that it was a daughter and things might be different, but, you know, the, the idealized father 
and how great he could have been as a father mm-hmm. to her potentially. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think it might be a way of even dealing with grief and loss? Certainly. It's it's very possible, yeah. It is. Um although when I checked, um he lost his daughter, um uh, I think it was not it wasn't in the around the time mm-hmm. where when Danny the champion of the world was published okay. um, we know that this was published a lot earlier than the other stories yes. like Matilda mm-hmm. and um, Sophie in the BFG mm-hmm. so I would actually argue my bets would be that his if because he's lost his, he lost his own daughter those projections would probably be in the stories of Sophie and Matilda mm-hmm. I would imagine it would make more sense it to would me make more sense you're right it would yes so the quote of, um, I think that all the love he had felt for my mother when she was alive, he now lavished upon me. And I was struck by this word lavished. Mm. Like, you know, so that, that kind of shows, for me, it shows a glimpse of Roald Dahl's inner life and mm. inner world. Perhaps he really did want to have this father-son special relationship. And it makes sense because uh, we learn from Roald Dahl's autobiography that Astrid, the the sibling who died at seven was actually his dad's favorite child mm. so that's bound to come up with some kind of dilemma for Waldahl not and he was bang in the middle of his siblings as well yeah yeah and also he, he says at some point that it's definitely the grief of her loss that killed him you know he didn't yeah. he had no reason to live on any longer mm. um, so yes that would make a lot of sense mm-hmm. And there is a lot of symbolism in, so I want to talk a little bit about the, um, it, Danny's dad, he's called William, and we know that you mentioned earlier, Fatima, that they live in a filling, uh, in a filling station, um, in a caravan, that's their home, so it's a very minimalist lifestyle, and um, what they do for a living is their mechanics, and Danny himself is only like five or six, I believe, when he's being taught by his dad to rip down, take a car engine down to pieces and build it all back up again. So I, I think this is very, very heavy with symbolism of creation and destruction. Um, and it's very interesting to me that Roald Dahl's own father um, had, unfortunately he had an amputation. His uh, arm had to be amputated because of gangrene, he developed gangrene. Um, an infection and uh, there was no other no other way and um, so they had to amputate his arm and his dad was 14 when this happened um, so I, I wonder if there is some symbolism here about the importance of limbs in a human being and the importance mm. of arms mm. because when we when we work with engines um, you've got to have fine motor skills like you've got to use your hands and you've got to use your arms and you can't really do that without mm. your arms right yeah that makes sense i didn't know about his father not having uh having had lost mm. one of his arms but yes i can see where you're coming from and you know when we look into the autobiography of Waldor, we kind of get a glimpse of his feelings about his dad so for example um this is in the autobiography boy and I'm just going to read um, a segment from that. Roald Dahl writes, My father was no less than his brother. While Uncle Oscar was bustling around in La Rochelle, La Rochelle is in France, his one-armed brother Harold was not sitting on his rump doing nothing. 
So he's kind of telling us, he's telling the reader that, look, my dad was somebody, like my uncle Oscar might have been this rich dude and, you know, this rich person um, bustling around in, in France. But my one, but, you know, um, my one-armed dad was not just nobody. He wasn't just sitting on his, you know, rump mm -hmm. <laughs> doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think this does give us a glimpse into Rodol's feelings, which have then been projected into the story with... Mm -hmm. with William and Denny and there are lots of other things that require the use of arms right like the poaching for example the shooting um, the driving mm. um, anything else that came up for you I know I like the crux of this whole story rests on well having two arms for the dad absolutely but you know even the hunting so like Victor Hazel shoots mm. he hunts mm. and to be bang on target to shoot a a target like a pheasant or whatever it is you've kind of got to use both arms and you've it's it's a very delicate job like if you miss you've got to, it's it requires a lot of precision but even with mechanics when you're working with engines um, not that I myself have broken down the car engine but I, but I am I am interested I mean I can do a lot of the basics of, mm. oh yes really I oh gosh <laughs> no Pablo was very young when yeah you don't know this about me <laughs> yeah I used to check my own oil so back back, back when I was like 16 mm -hmm. I, when I first started to drive and everything before I got my license mm -hmm. um, not that anybody taught me mm -hmm. I mean my, my dad is a very practical man of mm -hmm. course but he used to really make sure that my car was in working condition mm -hmm. he was very worried about mm -hmm. my safety in that sense mm -hmm. like is your car running okay mm -hmm. have you checked the tyres <laughs> have you done this yeah. and um, I mean I couldn't sometimes I used to say yeah dad I've checked them but I didn't really <laughs> check my tires before I went on a long journey you know oh. but I used to fill my own washer I know how to do that I know how to check the engine oil I know how when the battery you know is is uh, kind of getting low the water okay. wow. and That's I know the sound of a fan belt the screeching sound for listeners out there if your car's screeching it means you need a new fan belt <laughs> That's very different from how I, I do things. My check engine light was on for, for days before I was oh like, gosh, I don't think this lamp is meant to be on. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that so, makes sense. Yeah, so the hunting requires a lot of precision. Mm -hmm. Mechanics requires a lot of precision. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of arm symbolism. Mm -hmm. And there is also something about um, supplying fuel. Because they're, they're supplying fuel, mm -hmm. and Roldal's own history was his dad. So this, again, I think relates with Roldal's own history. Mm -hmm. Because his dad in Wales, uh, he was in Wales, which is in the United Kingdom, and there is a city in the south of Wales, the, the capital of Wales is Cardiff. Mm -hmm. If any of listeners know, know Cardiff or heard of Cardiff. Um, and his dad was a shipbroker supplying mm -hmm. supplying fuel and essential mm -hmm. items so maybe Waldar picked up this idea of supplying being of service to the community mm -hmm. because you can't get anywhere if your car's not got fuel yeah. if the if your neighbors and the community have not got fuel it's a very essential you know yes that's a good point and i, I will say a little bit more about mm -hmm. the importance of an essential of being an essential, you know, part of a society in in a different way later mm. on. There's a juxtaposition as well. So you know that we've just been talking about hunting, and um, you know, you 
using the gun and other weapons really extends the arms reach and capacity for annihilation and destruction, right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we've got Roald Dahl really saying something, probably perhaps from his own history of, of this, the importance of arms and limbs and his dad being one-armed. Um, we've got destruc destruction on one hand, but then on the other hand, we've got Danny and his dad fixing, repairing, the kind of life instinct, creativity, making something, giving birth to a new engine here. And there's also, that's just as you were saying that, I think what makes Danny champion of the world is a non-violent way of poaching that does not actually require arms, something that they've come up with together um, and so he gets the job done. So he, mm -hmm. he's almost like the arm for the dad in that, right? Like they do it together. That's very interesting. He is like his dad's arm, which actually connects with something that I've picked up in terms of the language. So in one of the in one point in the story, Danny's um, going to rescue his dad because his dad's fallen into a pit while while going out poaching, and Roald Dahl uses a simile. So if any of our listeners out there are familiar with literary devices, and you know simile is when you compare one thing with another thing. Um, and it uses words like as if or this is like this. So it's comparing two qualities together. And what Waldahl does is he describes Danny's flashlight because Danny has to take a torch. He's going in the dark and he can't see. And he's actually taken a torch from the caravan to help him see on his journey and in going into the woods in the, in the darkness. And Waldahl says, like a long white arm. Mm. So he's comparing this torch to a long white arm. Mm. So again, again, for me, it just tells me about how Waldahl is thinking about arms. <laughs> yeah, human arms and limbs. Um, so there is a juxtaposition between destruction, but also, like you said, there was a lot of creativity with Danny coming mm -hmm. up with this method. And I also wondered whether the pheasants have some symbolic element, because it's like maybe, maybe there is a hidden envy of freedom. Pheasants have wings, therefore they, they have some freedom. They can fly, or at least maybe not on a long flight, mm -hmm. but they can do some flapping and flying and they're essentially free um you know with them being birds and and losing an arm restricts freedom hmm. i suppose that that could make sense um yeah and and we when we get to a different part of today's podcast we'll explore all the other things that you know that's tied into but i think those are some really insightful and important connections that we've drawn and found with, with Roald Dahl's own life, Dr. Sara. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Faya, the, the story really revolves around Danny, <clears throat> excuse me, and William's relationship. And, um, you know, father-son relationships are complex, like mother-daughter relationships often. And I'm sure you see that in your work because... Um, it's definitely something I see a lot of. Um, they, they are quite pivotal for lots of people and complex and have, are quite emotionally charged often. Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you have seen in your practice over the years and any in 
insights you might have about father-son relationships? I understand it's a very broad question and you could really go wherever you want with I it. I could, I could indeed. <laughs> I think reading reading Danny's relationship with his dad um, is, is much more of a juxtaposition for me in terms of what I've witnessed in my own work uh, and of course from my own personal experiences as well. It's not all that common to see the dynamics that we see between Danny and his dad in the book, which I'll talk about in, in more detail as we go on. Um, in my practice, there are lots of, um, I think I said this maybe perhaps in an earlier episode as well, in our last episode, where um, father-son dynamics here, in particular in this context, are centred more around this idea of... Um, not really being so hands-on although there are exceptions to that and i think being the hands-on father is more like a western a, a, a western expectation and i think here in our pakistani context though at least in in asian nations although now i think with the newer generation i do see a lot of my young male patients coming with this sense of you know my dad was never he never did rough and tumble with me or you know he never showed me how to change a tire on a car he never taught me how to ride a bike we never did the things that you know dads do uh, or this idea this image of western fathers doing things uh, you know getting down on the ground having a wrestling match mm -hmm. with your son and a lot of the younger generation th those who are planning to be fathers or have a wish to be a dad those who perhaps are a bit earlier in their life stage and are still very ambivalent about whether or not they can be great dads because of their own history with their own fathers. I, I see a lot of this wish of, well, you know, I'm going to do things differently with my children. Even if I have a daughter, I'm going to make sure that I'm teaching her things or I'm really there, you know, really involved um, with my children. So that, 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 that's the kind of dynamics that I see which actually... Uh, it arouses a lot of bitterness, resentment, but but also also I see a lot of idealization as well. Very early on, when people come, when my male patients come into therapy, and I, I, I this relates to how Danny sees his dad as well, this amazing kind of father. There has to be some healthy idealization as well, but not so much in a sense where you're missing missing the bits of your father that you you need to really mourn like okay my dad did all of this but actually didn't do this and that's where my gap is it could be social skills it could be whatever it is that that you feel you've not learned from your parents or from your father um and yeah it's it's kind of um having a three-dimensional view of your of your father. And that doesn't mean to say that you kind of have to have a healthy balance. And I think it can take us years as humans to do that. Even people who get into their 50s and 60s with maturity have still not grasped a healthy balance because as humans were swayed into either a left position or a right position, you know, in terms of either we, our father was perfect, he did no wrong, he was an amazing dad and he taught me this and, you know, 
and it's covering all of the you know subtleties underneath um, or we go to the other end where my dad I hate him you know he was nothing to me I can't have a relationship with him I avoid him you know and uh, he didn't he didn't do anything for me so it's kind of finding some healthy medium between negativity the bitterness but also some positive aspects of seeing our dad our fathers as as our father as being just simply that a human who makes mistakes and mm -hmm. is very flawed mm -hmm. aren't we all flawed yeah i think something that came up for me as you were saying this dr farah was that particularly in pakistan uh, i imagine this is true for some other parts of the world also but the conflict is is more um, enhanced by the fact that you know the male is the provider right so he's holding a lot of power at home so it's a really complex mix of is this gratitude is this indebtedness like where is the idea like what type of idealization is it are you idealizing them for for who they are you know as the provider and so it's it's really tied into a lot of different things and um in my work i've definitely seen that it can be very challenging for young men particularly mm -hmm. to separate those two things right like i really look up to my dad because he's done this for me he's provided for us he's sent me to university he um but also it becomes very difficult to then say no this is me and this is what i want and this is how i want to live my life mm -hmm. and this is what, what i want to do with my stuff and mm -hmm. you know whatever it is but that separation then becomes very difficult even even well into adulthood i would say absolutely because things are a little bit more enmeshed here than they would be um and there's more dependence perhaps here than there would be in in other parts of the world just by nature of the way things are set up absolutely there is a lot more enmeshment and the degree of separation uh, between an, an adult child and a parent um at least with me you know with uh, i think working across different cultures and also being of um my origins being in the you know in, in england and everything i think i think here you're very that's very true that's very right that over here there are, i think young adults here the population here have a lot more struggles with separating from their parents because of the social structures set up here mm -hmm. um and the practices and the conventions that pakistani societies hold um I, and i think they're different for males and females in in their own different ways mm -hmm. um but the, the 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 departure the point at where an adult child can feel a more a sense of more iness this is my voice this voice can might be a combination of my dad's voice and what my dad what my dad's values are and what my dad's instilled in me but i'm my own person i'm my own man and i think this is the decision that i would come with this is my own voice and that voice can either be very separate from the dad or it can be a mixture of perhaps mum and dad's voice and a bit of the adult child's the adult's voice but what whatever whatever the mixture is in the voice this sense of conviction that i feel comfortable and this be having a deep faith in one's own voice whatever the decisions are whether it's to move abroad for a job whether it's to get married to a certain person whether it's whatever the life decision or life choice is it's having a deep sense of conviction that no my parents don't long my father my father's voice is very present and has shaped me but will not 
I will not be guided or I will not be consumed by my dad's voice because it's almost like a possession and it is a possession I think our egos are so fragile early on in life and it takes time it takes a certain level of maturity and I think for that to happen it's much easier when an adult child has left home you know whenever that is whether that's early 20s late 20s you, you've got to be physically away and emotionally away from a father mm -hmm. to then look back with a detached lens and a detached binoculars that 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 for me is absolutely imperative to begin to develop your own voice mm. um, or at least it makes it much easier than be, still being in the vicinity and in the closeness and the enmeshment you know mm. and i would argue it's true for both parents like i think that separation is important from the mum also mm. um that makes that makes sense um do you have any thoughts about Danny and his father um, and their relationship? Like, you know, in, in the light of everything you've said, how do you understand their relationship? And if, yeah, I'll mm -hmm. let you do what you want with that. Mm -hmm. um, they have a very close bond. Um, I really liked, I really liked their bond. And I think for that reason, this was, this got, this has got to be, it, it was, I read this, I think when I was about nine or 10. And um, out of the whole Waldorf collection, this was my favourite book. Um, it was, it just was. There's something about him and his, um, the dynamics between him and his father. And of course, there are, there are, there are some subtle nuances in their relationship, which I'll talk a little bit about, which perhaps shouldn't be there, or maybe, maybe should be there, but they carry it really well. Um, but I, I think they're very close together. They, there's a lot of physical intimacy, so we learn. We learned that Danny, you know, um, puts his hand in his father's hands, and you know they have they, they do a lot of hand holding. His dad tells him stories at night in the caravan. That's nice. They do things together, um, and you know um, he describes his dad as a really funny person, um, quite jolly. But Danny's very mature in the sense he takes care of his dad with such grace and it's kind of like taking care of his father's feelings and you know he doesn't at one, one point when he learns about his dad doing this secret mm -hmm. kind of poaching and you know his dad comes back and says um i broke my vow you know he kind of like confesses i'm really sorry i did this and i'm mm -hmm. i'm this is my addiction basically that you know i love poaching mm -hmm. and even then um we learn on page 41 it is where where Danny's learned about it because he kind of um, didn't know this and there was this dark secret that was hanging over them and at one point Danny wakes up in the middle of the night, his father's not there, Danny's so scared understandably, he doesn't know what's happened to his father so he sits out most of the night um, on the steps of the caravan but then his dad eventually comes back and that's when his dad confesses, it's, it's like a confession. Um, and I'm just going to read a quote from page 1441. Um, so Danny asks, have you been doing this often after I've gone to sleep without me knowing it? No, he said, tonight was the first time for nine years when your mother died and I had to look after you by myself. I made a vow to give up poaching until you were old enough. 
to be left alone at nights. But this evening I broke my vow. I had such a tremendous longing to go up into the woods again. I just couldn't stop myself. I'm very sorry I did it. And then Danny says, if you ever want to do it to go again, I won't mind. Yeah. So he gives him permission to go. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He gives him permission. And he's the child. So here there is a role reversal. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Danny is his dad in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because his dad kind of talks about it with such exhilaration. Like, oh, I couldn't help myself. I'm really, really sorry. And his and Danny's kind of so forgiving, so tolerant. But he's very adult-like because he says, um, his dad says, do you really mean that? And Danny says, yes, so long as you tell me beforehand. You will promise me t- to tell me beforehand if you're going, won't mm-hmm. you? This reminds me of even in my own therapeutic practice where a lot of young people will come and confess to me, um, you know, they've, they've tried cocaine or they've had an ecstasy pill over the weekend and they wouldn't dare tell their own parents, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's our job as therapists. I mean, that's for me, mm-hmm. that I see my role as kind of like a therapist, surrogate parent. Mm-hmm. And if they're not going to, nobody's got, no young person is going to stop taking any drug just with you saying, don't, I, I don't want you to take drugs. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to do that. They have to learn themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's about having some balance between being protective as a therapist, my duty to be care, caring mm-hmm. and worried about them, mm-hmm. but also giving the child room to make mistakes and to come and confess as long as their life's not in danger of course yes. you know they're gonna experiment they're gonna do that and i can see that in in danny's dad mm-hmm. danny's i mean poaching is very different than taking mm-hmm. a drug or mm-hmm. being addicted to alcohol mm-hmm. or gambling mm-hmm. but it's still a forbidden illegal activity yes, you know is. and that's the first thing he says isn't that illegal when he finds out yeah, yeah. okay that's really insightful dr Farrell. um is there anything else that comes to your mind as you think about the relationship? Mm. Um, so I, th- I think I think Danny does a lot of, uh, con- perhaps he conceals a lot of his own disappointment or it could be, I was wondering that Roald Dahl's writing for children, if this had been an adult novel, let's say Danny's dad was engaging in something else a bit more braver, like let's say he had alcoholism and Danny didn't know that, he, that his dad was drinking at night and being more careless in a way where you know, it would have a direct impact on Danny. You see, with poaching, although it's forbidden, although it's illegal, and yes, it's stealing, and Danny says, oh, you know, I never thought my dad would be a thief. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have the a direct personal harm to Danny in the way that an alcoholic father, perhaps, or a father who's consumed by alcohol addiction would have, you know. And I think there's something about the fact that the the, the, the pheasants are being poached from... Uh, Mr. Hazel that almost makes it easier to digest right like it's an act of rebellion um, I don't know I'll say more about that mm. uh, in a bit do, do you mean perhaps envy of people who are elite or people who uh, well, well part of it but I think it's almost that you know he's the bad man so stealing from him is, isn't that bad it could be worse if he was stealing from say a widow or an old woman mm. or a child like uh, it's it's something that Mr. Hazel has in excess. He has the resources to um, continue breeding them and feeding them, and it doesn't. And the poaching doesn't significantly impact his life either, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a fun thing that people are doing. So mm-hmm. it doesn't feel as dangerous as say drinking and driving or 
there's nobody at real risk here mm. in some ways. Yeah. And because of that risk, I think that's probably the reason perhaps why Danny, we see, we see, we see him very devoid of anger or disappointment or resentment. We see him being so tolerant, so forgiving. And then he circles back at the end of the story back to his dad being this wonderful, amazing father. And I've extracted a, a, a segment from the story which um, really speaks about Danny actually being, I think, well, Base, in, in a, basically, I think Danny could be a wonderful therapist. Yes, I thought that too as I was reading it. <laughs> yeah. Danny notices that his dad has changed. Uh, he's very perceptive, and this is after he goes and rescues his father from the pit. Um, and there is a segment where uh, he notices that his dad's changed, yet he doesn't actually press his dad mm. to speak. Yeah. He's very, very tolerant, very patient, very adult-like with his dad. Um, so I'm going to read this segment from page 87. The difference lay in my father. A change had come over him. It wasn't a big change, but it was enough to make me certain that something was worrying him quite a lot. Mm -hmm. He would brood a good deal, and there would be silences between us, especially at supper time. Uh, many times I wanted to ask him what the trouble was, and had I done so, I'm sure he would have told me at once. In any event, I knew that sooner or later I would hear all about it, and I hadn't long to wait. Mm. And there is another bit here where, um, again, we see this same element of maturity, same level of patience with his dad. So this is on page 89. His dad here is actually um, expressing his feelings about Victor Hazel, Mr. Hazel, to, to Danny. So he's expressing his um, fury. And so he says, um, but it's the way he looks at me that is so infuriating. Mm -hmm. There is a sneer under his nose and a <laughs> smug little smirk around his mouth. And oh, although I only see him for three seconds, it makes me madder than mackerel. Mm -hmm. What's more, I stay mad for the rest of the day. <laughs> and Danny says, I don't blame you, mm -hmm. I said. A silence fell between us. I waited to see what was coming next. Mm. And we do that as therapists. Yeah. We, If a patient, this is like having a patient in front of us, telling us about their fury, what's made them mad in the week that's just gone or whatever they're mad about. And saying something like, well, I don't really blame you. Mm -hmm. That's very affirmative. It's very validating and mm -hmm. understanding. Mm -hmm. And then a silence descends. Mm. And in therapy, in the consulting room, or at least in my consulting room, there are many instances where silence just descends mm. and I wait to mm. hear what my patient says next. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, th those bits definitely stood out to me also when I was reading it, particularly the first one. And I was like, that's very, um, yeah, he's very attuned to his dad. Very much so. And don't you think that that attunement, although he's only nine, mm. but that attunement is a prerequisite mm. for being a therapist. That's... That's one of the, and that's something that I cannot teach my trainees. I, I haven't been able to teach that to my trainees. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of what we call soft skills or, you know, it's a personal quality that you can't teach anybody. It's born from within. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I agree with you. And I also think that it speaks to the the security of their relationship where he's able to see that his dad's not, you know, doing so well or whatever, but he's not over he's concerned, he's attuned to it, but he's not so distressed by it that he would rush in and, and mm-hmm. try to do something. He sort of knows that it's going to it's going to pass, that he'd figure it out and he watches from kind of a a safe distance and goes in and out if he needs to, much like a therapist would. But also, you know, we are mimicking essentially what is the secure relationship, or our hope is to. Definitely, I really liked how you described that, Fatima, because of the in and out. And in our work, or at least in my work with patients, we don't, we see more of a helicopter type parenting Mm -hmm. and controlling or a very possessive and devouring. But you're right, Danny here does know effortlessly he navigates in and out between his dad's emotions and his, you know, yeah, it's not the controlling essence. That's why I really, really like their relationship mm-hmm. and their bond, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was very special. Yes, very much so. Okay, so um, one thing that really stood out for me as I was reading this book, um, and I wondered... This is just a theory, so we'll, we'll work with that, and I'll mm-hmm. see how that fits into the, the story, is that Danny and William are Roma people, or gypsies, as they would mm-hmm. be called, but that term is no longer used, and it's been reclaimed, and is now considered a slur. So we'll go with Roma people. There's a couple of main clues here, the first one being, well, the fact that they live in a caravan, right? Mm-hmm. So um, how did that happen? On page number five, actually, very early on in the story, um, we find out that the caravan uh, was our house and our home. It was a real old gypsy wagon with big wheels and fine patterns painted all over it in yellow and red and blue. My father said it was at least 150 years old. Many gypsy children, he said, had been born in it and had grown up within its wooden walls. With a horse to pull it, the old caravan must have wandered for thousands of miles along the roads and lanes of England. But now its wanderings were over, and because the wooden spokes and the wheels were beginning to rot, my father had propped it up underneath with bricks. So that's a pretty big clue, I would say. Mm. Um, and his father already has the history as to you know, what mm. happened. and They didn't just chance upon it. It's probably been in the family for a while. The second, uh, second clue is much later. Um, on page 102, we, we have Danny asking his father how his mom and him cooked the pheasants before they could roast them. So when, how did they roast them? And William says, that was quite a trick. We used to build a fire outside the caravan and roast them on a spit the way the gypsies do. So there's something about both of those things that makes me wonder, and it would make sense in lots of other ways that they actually come from Roma descent. Um, And as I was researching this, I got very interested and very invested in it. Mm -hmm. So I have lots to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, For those of our listeners who are not familiar with the Roma people, they are, first of all, not the same as Romanian. Um, Mm -hmm. They're sometimes, well, more commonly called gypsies in in, Mm -hmm. uh, popular literature. 
and uh, the way that they were presented on media. And they, there's a lot of mystery around them. So first, let's, let's begin a little bit with what are, what are the things that come to our mind when we think of gypsies? Uh, Fortune telling. That's the first one. Anything else that comes to your mind, Dr. Farah? Stealing. Stealing. Third. You lost me. Mm. Some mysterious women. Uh, music. That's another ah. one. Uh, and they are lying. That that's another one mm. that that's coming. Can you see more about about the mysteriousness? I'm intrigued. So the mis- mysterious, you know how gypsy women are considered to be this exotic, mysterious thing that white men are drawn into. And I could go on about that because as I was reading this, I was thinking about Alessandra Lemma's work on mm. prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, the and sacred kind of, prostitute. Uh, well, the sacred prostitute and also what they represent in um, society as kind of mm. removed, you know, all the badness of the society can be inserted essentially into women that do not belong to mainstream society. So she writes oh, about that quite extensively. That reminds me of, uh, like in Jungian terms, the shadow, that's like the shadow of yeah. society, the yeah. dark. Yeah, and, and you know, it's no surprise that prostitution mm-hmm. was the first profession in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's existed for a long time and that's how we, you know, but that's a whole other thing that you and I could possibly <laughs> get into. But back to Roma people. Uh, so we, those are the, the main kind of stereotypes around gypsies that we hear about, right? Like they're untidy, they steal, they're unwashed, there's an overall mistrust, um, they live in caravans, uh, they're skilled metal workers, mm. um, horses are a big part of the culture, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's another one, they're criminals or extortionists. So that's something that we hear a lot about, and fortune-telling, of course, that, that, that's yeah, the main yeah. one. Mm-hmm. And the more I started wondering about it, the more I realized that Danny and his dad are actually kind of removed from the v- village. They don't live in the village, right? They live on the outskirts of the place. And uh, they're friends with everybody. He goes to a school, but he's not. Um, he doesn't have people over either. So there's a level of living on the peripheries in some way, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not part of society in the same way um, that a lot of other people say, like the policemen or the shopkeepers or children mm-hmm. at school are. Do you have something to add? Uh, yeah, and also, actually, it just reminded me of um, even Danny. So it's not, it, it's, not da- it's not his dad so much because his dad, we know, encourages him to bring his friends over for supper. But da- Danny actually, is, it's a conscious choice. He says that he would much rather prefer being with his dad mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. And he refuses, like, his friends to come. And I, I think that's a bit of the unhealthy bit about their relationship. Yeah. But maybe you could say more about the, why perhaps Danny doesn't want. Yes, and I would really like to go into that. Uh, and, well, there's good reason, right? But first, we have to understand a little bit of their history um, as we talk about this. Mm-hmm. But so there's obviously the the living separately, but there's also this thing of living off the land, uh, the the poaching, and the apple tree, for example, are two things that came to me, and that's how historically, the Roma people have survived. They've moved mm-hmm. from place to place, and they've lived off the land. And knowledge about how to do that, is passed down from generation to generation. And there's it's not documented. It's not written down. Um, literature in written word you know written stuff doesn't exist in the same way 
but there's a lot of really in-depth knowledge about um you know the earth how to feed ourselves how to sustain ourselves by living there and you know if we look back at it the thieving probably made sense because they were so ostracized particularly in europe and looked down upon mm-hmm. and um because they were darker skinned looked different there was a lot of suspicion already so to survive they they may have had to resort to to mm-hmm. stealing right mm-hmm. and fortune telling in itself is also one of those things that is it's an act of self preservation in some ways uh because you know if people around you think you know something about their future they're less likely to mess with you than mm-hmm. uh they would be otherwise it makes you less vulnerable in a way mm-hmm. i suppose is what i'm saying so culturally there are reasons for all of those things of not wanting to let people in because they the roma people as a population there's about 12 million of them documented now mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. uh so that's a large number but mm-hmm. historically as a group they've been the most persecuted group in the history of the world essentially for as long any part of history mm-hmm. there's always persecution happening since they've existed um and so there's obviously a generational level of suspicion about people about you know mainstream society that's passed down to them so that's one thing but i also you know there's two points in the book where danny talks about how his father could have uh been very good if he learned to go to school or like he had gone further in school um but he had a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. and on page 102 he says uh you know how he lo- loves those morning walks to school with his father and they they talk all the time um and that he knew about the fields the streams the woods the creatures who lived in this in these places um although he was a mechanic by trade and a very fine one i believe he could become a great naturalist if only he had 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 good schooling mm-hmm. and that he knew the names of the trees the wild flowers grasses uh knowledge about birds all of these things that i would imagine are passed down in in the oral histories um mm-hmm. within these communities some of the other things we know about them is that family is very important and they do stick together and mm-hmm. there's a lot of value of, you know in mm-hmm. in togetherness so that's something we see in their relationship yeah also mm-hmm. um and there are you know we don't we don't know a lot about Danny's interactions with other people but we also come across this one scene at school where he is um told off by captain lancaster um mm-hmm. and who even though he's done nothing wrong he is called out and and hit you and captain lancaster says you're not only a cheat but you are insolent um and he sort of accuses him of cheating and lying basically cheating is a repulsive habit practiced by gutter snipes and dandy frats mm-hmm. again I, i might be reading too much into it and i don't know roldal actually sat there and thought of you know writing this like this but it's not beyond the realm of possibility is mm-hmm. what i'm saying mm-hmm. um so yeah those were all of the clues that that were uh, in the book um so i i that's the conclusion i've come to 
and I thought that maybe it would be helpful or interesting for some of our readers, uh, listeners to um, hear more about Roma people and their origin because it does interestingly connect to Pakistan. I don't know if you knew that, Dr. Farah. Mm-hmm. So, say no. Um, well, that's there's consensus that they originated in what is now Pakistan. Ah, mm-hmm. so uh, former India, British yes, India, yes, before North, British India, yes, before that, mm-hmm. Northwestern India. So mm-hmm. there's debate around when exactly this migration mm-hmm. happened, but it's between the third and the twelfth century at some mm-hmm. point. And ah, oh, before Renaissance. Then. Yeah. So this is Middle Ages, really. Yes. Yeah. And there's it's unclear as to what happened, but mm-hmm. there's so now they've done a lot of you know genetically they can be traced back to people of Rajasthan particularly, mm-hmm. uh, Sindh, Rajasthan, a little bit of Punjab. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the biggest clue is the the language mm-hmm. is uh is distinctly Indo Aryan. So it's that's yeah the Indo Aryan population. They migrated from the um from the uh, Arab what is now of course Iran, present day Iran. Yeah. But it was Mesopotamia before I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so the it's you know it's uh, it's distinctly um that there's a lot of similarity, but the interesting mm-hmm. thing is it cannot be traced down to a single language group. Yeah. So there's some Bengali, some Gujarati, some mm-hmm. Punjabi uh, in in the spoken language, mm-hmm. which suggests that maybe it wasn't a homogenous group of people yeah. that migrated, um, but a, a bunch of different populations in that language then evolved and grew. Uh-huh. And again, they scattered all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could possibly be that there was an army Right, that that would be that would make sense that an army com- composed of people from different parts mm-hmm. of India. Um, one theory is that they came in to fight off the Muslim invaders. Mm-hmm. So it was an army that was um, assembled to do that, and then the, they then went off and migrated mm-hmm. because they couldn't ward off the invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The other theory, and this is, um, and then this suggests that it goes way back. Actually, is it's in the Shahname, the Persian poetry book. Oh, mm-hmm. the, uh, there's this, there's a story about how a gift of um, I forget what the exact number was, but I think about ten to fifteen thousand musicians and entertainers and their families were given to the Shah of Persia in four thirty nine. And so there's the, the possibility that these people, and then they had to take their show on the road. Mm-hmm. So that these people and music is a big part of yes. gypsy culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's another mm-hmm. potential origin story. But what we do know is that even in Pakistan today, there is a population called the Khana Badosh, which mm-hmm. um, lives in. There's stark similarities in the way that they live their lives in gypsies that oh. we yeah. So cultural practices, music—they live. Oh. They live as entertainers and musicians. That's how they make money. Mm-hmm. They move around a lot. The way that they set up their houses yeah. is similar. Uh, cultural practices around family quite similar. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so a bit, a bit like nomads, really, yeah. because nomads don't ever really settle in one place. They kind of move from you know place to place and that's why they really need survival skills like mm-hmm. you said earlier that you need to be able to survive yes and they have knowledge of mm-hmm. you know rare foods how to preserve things much like daniel's father mm-hmm. um so he has you know he knows how to live off the land mm-hmm. 
so yeah that's something that came up as i was reading it um and it made me wonder if we could understand danny and his father's relationship mm-hmm. through that lens but also the relationship with people around them mm-hmm. and that leads me kind of to my second point about uh why why mr hazel is depicted the way that he is you know he is this everything that could possibly wrong be wrong with somebody's wrong with him mm-hmm. so he has a beer factory i believe mm-hmm. that's that's what he does he has a brewery um he drives a rolls royce so mm-hmm. he's rich and he's um he sh- he's a show off mm-hmm. so, um he wears waistcoats he's like really mean and indulgent a lot of vices in that way but and the, you know he's very rich i think the there's something about the story where there's an element of um, it being like robin hood mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. taking from the rich and then giving to the poor yeah and in some ways that the and essentially poaching is is stealing right it's something stealing. that roma people are mm-hmm. repeatedly accused of uh but this other this other layer to it almost humanizes it and that removes that moral dilemma of stealing mm-hmm. so if you're taking from the rich and giving to the poor and if the rich are exploitative and mean and uh, you know not very nice people mm-hmm. it almost in some ways kind of makes it okay mm-hmm. is the suggestion and i don't know if you thought that there were any parallels between this story and robin hood um, or any mm-hmm. other thoughts you might have dr farah I think it, it's um, if we have a look at the writings of, of what kind of philosophy Robin Hood um, is 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 attached to is kind of the utilitarian utilitarian approach really and this kind of idea. But I think what you're saying is that it legitimizes it in some way because um, this idea that um, the rich have got too much. A bit like com, a bit like communism. Mm-hmm. The rich have got too much, and we need to redistribution. Have more. That's right. Yes, we yeah redistribution, mm-hmm. and like you know that it, there's no equality. We have to have more of a balance, and they've got too much. You know the rich people and the elite people in society have got too much, so it's okay to take from them um, and give it to the less fortunate um, people. Yeah, and uh, would you? I know this is a contrast special question but would you still consider poaching thieving or stealing that's a really interesting question so if we're going to look at things very black and white mm-hmm. because uh, i personally don't like you know of course we're, we're also therapists so we don't really judge we don't we don't judge we don't look at things from moral perspective mm-hmm. or at least i don't mm-hmm. i don't look at things with morality because then when we go down that route we've got to split and look at polarities um but i think if we go with a very concrete uh black and white in terms of like law mm-hmm. then the concrete the concrete meaning of that it, it is it is stealing mm-hmm. i mean you can't regard it as otherwise i mean mm-hmm. if we're going to label it as a behavior regardless of the motivation behind it or whatever mm-hmm. but if we look at the very uh you know what the behavior is or what the act is and of course i would say yeah i mean it is stealing mm-hmm. um it is stealing and it's quite sort of like you know oh let's get the pheasants on our land mm-hmm. because then when they're on our land they're our property and nobody can take them then mm-hmm. uh, away mm-hmm. from us 
Yeah. But you're right, like there's so much nuance to this, mm-hmm. right? Like if a group of people or people have been systemically oppressed for centuries, um, are there any other ways of making ends meet for themselves? Mm-hmm. And that's maybe mm-hmm. something our listeners can wonder about and, and think about things that they see in very black and white terms as, mm-hmm. as bad. But are there other ways of looking at it? Um, and other things in place that make it very difficult to do other things. And I'm not saying particularly the mm-hmm. poaching, of course, they could go without the poaching. Mm-hmm. But that, that's another, another layer to it. Like our everyday experiences and mm-hmm. our decisions are largely informed by, okay, maybe not largely, I know, I know you probably disagree with that, but mm-hmm. there's definitely, um, you know, our histories, our cultural histories, our politics play into the choices we make. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and our philosophy of life, like yeah. what, what, what our worldview is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure if you knew this, mm-hmm. but in Pakistan, I was just doing a little bit of research, but in Pakistan in last year, I believe it was during the pandemic lockdown in 2020, there was a competition, um, a pheasant shooting competition in Punjab. Really? Yeah, and uh, the kind of, the rule is that that if you of course if you have a license and all of that and you're reg- you're a registered hunter to, to to go to this shooting competition then maximum of five pheasants are allowed each person and you mm-hmm. get a maximum of 15 gunshots oh. and i didn't know that it you know it, it, there's a lot of practices here yeah no no of course i can imagine that and uh, i even i think that um i would imagine it's probably like a colonial import um mm-hmm. because it seems like quite a thing um amongst upper class yeah. English folk so yeah yes uh, but that's an interesting parallel thank you mm-hmm. Dr. Farah thank you for listening to this episode of our series on the Pakistani couch we really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive We hope you'll feel able to write in to us, either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams. Your dreams will be anonymised and any personal details won't be shared. We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours. There are two main ways that you can write in to us. The first is to email us on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch until next time take good care of yourselves so dr farah could you please tell us a little bit about the book we're going to be discussing today the twits by Roldal? Mm-hmm. so I read this for the first time in my whole life. I did not read this as a child. I, I think it wasn't part of my Roald Dahl collection. Mm-hmm. I was I had the other main books. So Mr. and Mrs. Twit, I did not read. It's the first time I've read it. We um, uh, we kind of open up uh, 
with the story of um, two people who are husband and wife. So this is Mr. and Mrs. Twit. They're called, um, and they are they're described um, as two people who are quite hairy, um, and uh, they kind of look very messy. They're, they're they're quite dirty in their habits as well. So Roald Dahl does depict quite a a, a detailed picture of that. Um, and after that, we find out that they're both they both are living together. They have no children. Um, they live in a typically fairly, you know, typical house, and they play pranks on each other. Um, where one example is Mrs. Twit kind of puts worms in his spaghetti. He doesn't really know. Mr. Twit doesn't know, but when he finds out, of course, he takes his vengeance and then uh, plays a prank on Mrs. Twit. And it kind of goes back and forth. They both kind of really trick each other. Um, you know, they they prod each other, poke each other, and um and cause some turmoil really to each other. They, they really do taunt each other a lot. Um, and then by the middle of the story, we learn that they also have kept these monkeys in a cage, and we'll speak more about that as well. Um, the monkeys are used to um, play tricks, um, and they, they were trained, um, Mr. and Mrs. Twit are now retired, but before they used to train monkeys for uh, circus entertainment. So, so there is a family of monkeys that are kept in a cage back in outside in the garden, I believe it is. And then um, the monkeys kind of plot against um, Mr. and Mrs. Twit, and they come up with this grand idea, which we'll talk about later on in the episode today. And by the end of the story, um, we end up with Mr. and Mrs. Twit going back to their house, and everything's upside down. So the furniture is all the other way around, it's being glued together and their whole reality is, is changed and then they both start to shrink um, and that's the end of the story. They, bo they both shrink and all that's left of Mr and Mrs Twit are their um, clothes. Great, thank you Dr Farah. Um, I think that gives us a um, idea of what the book is about and I thought it would be interesting to start with something that really is a big theme in the book, like you mentioned, their hairiness. Mm -hmm. um, very early on, we're told about Mr. Twit's beard in excruciating detail. Um, and I, I've, you know, we've read a couple of Roald Dahl books and I've read other ones we haven't covered yet. Mm -hmm. But this is a really evocative passage. The, it's very early on. It's, um, I think, two pages into the book where mm -hmm. it's called The Beard where Roald Dahl describes uh, Mr. Twit's beard as something that's, that food is stuck in and it's gross. And I felt physically sick as I read this, which, was, which said something about what, he, what the writer was trying to evoke. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be helpful just for us to talk a little bit about where that might be coming from, uh, for, from, the, from <laughs> coming from for the author and uh, generally how hair and beards are looked at uh, across cultures mm -hmm. and what the implications of that are in, in our world today. So just to start with, I thought it'd be helpful to talk about um, hair and what it has meant <laughs> and what it symbolizes. So there's different things, hairlessness and being hairy have meant different things in different cultures, different mm -hmm. times. Uh, some ways to think about it are, you know, how Adam was depicted as beardless before the fall and had long and bushy hair 
and a beard when he fell into sin. Mm. So there's something about beards and hairiness being connected to to sin in that or or evil in that. Um, in Hindu symbolism, uh, hairs like threads of a fabric symbolize the lines of force of the universe. It's also uh, hair also corresponds with the element of fire. Mm. Of course, hair being hairy or hairless is you know in a part of the whole thing but the color of the hair also has mm-hmm. a secondary meaning often so brown or black hair reinforces the symbolism of hair in general that it's dark terrestrial energy um mm-hmm. golden hair you know you might know is related to the sun's rays or it's mm-hmm. sort of this angelic thing that it tries to evoke um and it would be helpful to contextualized uh, to contextualize this to our situation and mm-hmm. Muslims, as you might know, cover Muslim women cover their hair, uh, the hair on their head, out of modesty and privacy from unrelated males. Uh, but Sikhs also have a practice where they don't cut their hair mm-hmm. because they believe that their hair is a gift from God, and therefore it would be wrong to cut it. Uh, in China, particularly, there is a lot of uh, strong political and social meaning attached to hair. Uh, for instance, in ancient times, they cherished the hair as a symbol of self-respect and it was valued as highly as the body itself. And so people who had wronged or needed to be insulted or punished had their hair removed, mm-hmm. which is very different from how it might be in other places. Um, I think part of why this is the way it is and hair has as much political and social meaning is because it's one of the things that doesn't um, like flesh, it doesn't decay with time, right? When, mm-hmm. when Even when people die, hair continues to exist. And you might have heard of in Victorian times how people would carry around locks of their mm-hmm. loved one's hair after they died. Mm-hmm. So that's another practice that's about the about hair kind of um, being more permanent than the body in some ways. Oh. Mm-hmm. Other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Um so just just kind of building on that, we talk about Mr. Twit's beard, which is bristly and what are the other words that he uses? Slimy. Um, and he talks about how food is stuck in, in his beard and he just, um, you know, it's really disgusting. I don't know how you felt about it, Dr. Farah, when you read this bit. Did you have any feelings? No, um... Do you know, I think I've gone the other way to Really? You. Yeah, I, had, I have, was really detached. I had no kind of sensory experiences. Or, really? Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I know. I, I don't know. I, I feel I, it is very interesting. And this could be my own defense against it. It could or be. Or it could be me. Or it could be. About I think you'll, I think you'll, <laughs> when you come to the research I'm going to talk about, about the emotions with okay. beards. But I think part of it, part of it, Part of it might be, um, so, you know, I've uh, uh, growing up as a young child, like under the age of 10, mm-hmm. so I think part of me being detached from it probably is because I've, I've been a carer, been a caregiver of somebody, my, uh, my mm-hmm. primary care, caregiver, mm-hmm. who I've, I think I've mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, uh, died um, of cancer. So I've cared for her mm-hmm. and I've, I've kind of had to kind of face a lot of gore and mm-hmm. a lot of bodily fluids mm-hmm. and a lot of kind of 
quite uh, slimy, messy, you know, so I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I think that probably plays a huge role in why these things don't really phase me. Okay, yeah, that would make sense. Um, and I and I went to an all-girls university and a hostel. Uh, well, I didn't go to an all-girls university, it was an all-girls hostel where there was a lot of hair in the bathroom always, so maybe that's why I'm oh, yeah, feeling feelings about it. Living with girls always means the drains are clogged. Oh, yes. <laughs> So um, what we do know on Roald Dahl, and this is something that came to my attention, is that um, I didn't know this. It was something I found out fairly recently that he's, we know that he served in the RAF as a fighter pilot. But the RAF, it's, which is the Royal Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, has a very strong or had a very strong position on beards historically, particularly in the Second World War. And they were always told to be clean shaven. Uh, this was partly because of political uh, reasons, but also practical reasons, because gas masks were harder to fit around bearded faces, mm. and the breathing apparatus uh, couldn't form that airtight seal if there was hair. So he, we know that that was a really pivotal time in Roald Dahl's uh, life, and um, maybe that's where his aversion to beards or associating them with evil or uh, mischief or you know, uh, things being disgusting or uncivilized, Mm. uh, that association for him perhaps came from there. Um, And so that's something I was thinking about. And I don't know if you knew, Dr. Farah, but Roald Dahl learned to fly in Nairobi. Yes, yeah, I did when I read his uh, autobiography. That's right, yes, yeah. So he, that's where he learned to fly and he had quite a prolific RAF career mm-hmm. um, and the RAF's position on beards it's, it's been different across like the, the Navy is fairly open about it uh, and they're open to having beards the army's position changed when they began fighting wars in India because in South Asia facial hair is associated with wisdom and uh, authority mm-hmm. you know like a mustache particularly mm-hmm. so they, they were encouraged actually to have facial hair mm-hmm. um, but what I did uh, find was that it was only very recently, in September 2019, that the RAF allowed uh, their personnel to grow a full set of beard. But oh, yeah. I didn't know that. But there's, a, there's even a condition to that, that they must be short and neatly trimmed. Okay, and like not patchy. No, 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 no. Not even, oh, a no full set of beard, beard. Yeah. And it must be neatly trimmed mm-hmm. and not patchy. So oh. there's also, there's things around mm-hmm. that. Um, I was quite surprised to learn mm-hmm. that. I don't know how mm-hmm. you feel about it, but mm-hmm. and you don't have any feelings. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's a lot of emotional, social, and political um, uh, sort of meaning of mm-hmm. beards, facial hair. We're focusing particularly mm-hmm. on facial hair. And that also made me think of what having facial hair can now mean. Mm. Uh, for example, I was thinking of it through the lens of Islamophobia, mm. you know, where people are subjected to discrimination and violence just by virtue of having a beard. And for lots of, like we learned today, and I'm sure people listening to us know, there is a religious significance for mm. Sikhs or Muslims to, and, and Jews uh, mm-hmm. to have facial hair. Mm. Um, yeah. Dr. Farah, would you yeah. like to say anything about that? No, that's a really interest, some really interesting points you've shared. Um, so I think let's begin to perhaps um, uh, fan this out a little bit, mm-hmm. this idea of Islamophobia. 
Um, so I came across this piece of research which was published um, this year in, yeah, this year, and the, the journal is called Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. So what, they, what these researchers um, have actually done is they've looked across five countries, so the US, India, Germany, France and Poland, and they've, so this is a cross-national piece of research, and they wanted to get an idea of um, countries, uh, to try and get an idea of people living in countries that are quite diverse from each other. So, you know, so India has very different social political practices to like France and, you know, Germany and um, Europe. Um, and so what they were looking at was what are the emotional layers of Islamophobia? Is it related to anger and disgust? Mm -hmm. And I think, Fatima, as I go on, you'll probably be able to see how, because you were saying about the level of disgust, disgust that you, yeah. 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 Um, and what they actually found was the, a, a big predictor of people who do have Islamophobia traits, so they, they did this with you know quite a lot of people in the study, um, were actually more sensitive to disgust. So they looked at the uh, people's baseline, like if, if people um, were more sensitive to disgust, they actually showed higher levels of Islamophobia. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do I make of that, Dr. Farah? <laughs> reaction to um, Muslims and you know those who, who uh, practice Islam or, or are from the Islamic faith um, they also found that people with higher levels of what we call what we term social dominance orientation mm -hmm. so what we mean by social dominance orientation um, obviously these are all done by questionnaires and people self-report and answer you know questions mm -hmm. but so for any of you out there who feel you know, you, you feel more comfortable perhaps with in-group, um, like an in-group feeling rather than an out-group feeling. Mm -hmm. And those of you perhaps are on the opposite side of that, to the contrary, you would rather, you would be comfortable with out-group feelings, uh, you know, being with an out-group mm -hmm. uh, rather than in-group. And then there are those who come in the middle of the spectrum where they can move in and out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can move in your own group, yeah. whatever the nationality or ethnic or race or appearance, it could be any identity mm -hmm. that you carry. And then you can go into another person's group and then move back and forth, which I, th I believe would be the healthiest position, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so these researchers found that anger was actually correlated with high levels of Islamophobia, which makes sense, mm -hmm. of course, because Islamophobia does have its consequences, like you said, Fatima, with violence and prejudice yes. and, uh, you know, abuse on many levels. Yeah, and, and people who experience it often report feeling anxiety, depression, physical illness, um, loss of income, employment sometimes as a result of being targeted. And it's mm -hmm. not, and I think it's important to point out here that even though Muslims for the large part are the ones on the receiving end of Islamophobia, it's not limited to just uh, Muslim Sikhs mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. receive a lot of um, Islamophobic threats and prejudice and discrimination, uh, microaggressions also, but also people with just beards and, and what mm -hmm. is sometimes called the Mediterranean skins or darker mm -hmm. skins, yes, olive, uh, olive skin, olive skin mm -hmm. uh, are on the receiving end of uh, Islamophobic uh, practices, mm -hmm. prejudices, um, yeah. So that's that's kind of what I found in my uh, research. 
Um, and overall, it can be a very isolating experience. And I'm wondering where that kind of hostility, um, and this is something I think I'm looking particularly at the UK when I say this, mm-hmm. uh, began. Again, you're right, Dr. Fights, it is an in-group, out-group thing. Mm-hmm. The thing of, you know, the image, and it's been particularly um, heightened post-Brexit, where this mm-hmm. in-group, out-group thing has been brought into sharper focus, or mm-hmm. that the immigrants are stealing our jobs, or, um, you know, as if those people are less British by mm-hmm. virtue of not being white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you want to maybe say a few words about your own experience of living in the UK um, as a non-white person, Dr. Mm-hmm. Farah, and being British. Yeah, absolutely, Fatima. That's a really interesting and uh, thoughtful question. So, so I think I can really relate to you know Islamophobia per se uh, from my own personal experiences. And uh, I mean, I'm from an immigrant. Uh, we were in an immigrant family, so we settled in Britain in the sixties. Um, that was our second immigration mm-hmm. uh, by my ancestry. So the first immigration was from India to Kenya. Uh, first Uganda, then Kenya, um, and then the second immigration was from there to then Britain. You know, mm-hmm. so I think being uh, being an immigrant family and settling in a different nation or a different country, it's a bit like being like a tree. Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of uproot yourself, yeah, and then plant yourself in a different. You mm-hmm. know, and it has a lot of advantages, but it comes with a lot of costs emotionally, mm-hmm. financially, practically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know it's how you take it it's, it's what attitude you go with I think that makes the difference mm-hmm. um, but yeah so this was our second immigration as a family and uh, I was born and raised uh, there in a, in a white predominant nation and I was a female I'm a woman of color mm-hmm. and I've spent over 30 years there before I emigrated to you know I went to Saudi then from Saudi I came here mm-hmm. but yeah I spent a lot of years and I, I can identify with that I mean I don't want to kind of outline the details of what was thrown at me, but I mean, I've heard, you know, words and uh, hurled at me, like, you know, what you're doing here, Paki, and, Mm. you know, things like that when I was growing up in school. And, uh, you know, I was actually, so because I'm from Newcastle, Mm -hmm. and Newcastle's such a small town, right? So back, there was not a lot of of cultural diversity Mm. back then, you know, and there were immigrants Mm. from Pakistan and India, but I mean, there was not so much as compared to, let's say, London being yeah, the capital. Of course. You know, in London you have a lot more diversity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Newcastle, there was it was limited. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I mean, I did have, you know, um, friends of all different kinds of ethnicities and, and races, but it was predominantly. So I, I mean, I kind of stood out, of course, as a female of color, mm-hmm. and that came with its, you know, consequences like bullying. Mm-hmm. I have gone through all of that growing mm-hmm. up, and I think. To be honest, looking back, I don't think I would change any of that because it really shaped me who mm-hmm. I am. And I think I think pain just makes you stronger and it kind of helps you to grow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's sad on many levels, but I, I don't think I would change the experiences I've had look, looking back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I've also observed this with my friends and peers and everything. And so, you know, if there, there were not very many, but I had like male... A classmates who would actually come with the Islamic cap, mm. wearing the Islamic cap, mm. having a beard, mm. and then the, my white friends or white peers would comment and mm. you know really look at them with disgust and contempt, mm. and and I think that the assumptions that all of humans make, we mm. all make them, mm. but like me, 
um, you know, people sort of commenting on my perhaps religion or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, uh, that I, because I'm brown, mm-hmm. it automatically means that I'm Muslim yeah. and that I'm a Pakistani yeah. or Indian, right? Yeah. But I mean, I could easily well be Jewish mm-hmm. or Christian mm-hmm. or some other mm-hmm. yeah. religious tradition, you know? So yeah. it's, it's the colour that, you know, people assume mm-hmm. by looking at me mm-hmm. uh, there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you don't have to answer this, Dr. Farah, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it, if you think those experiences impacted your overall sense of being British, or how did it make you feel like you were any less British than people around you? Ah, uh, that's a, that's a really important question. Um, I think what I have to say to that, and what's coming up here in my mind, is that my generation. So this is like the you know seventies. Um, the, the 70s um, is that people, my peers, I think I'm speaking for them because this is something that we've all, I've, I, we, most of us identify with is that we are all, we were all raised with a conflict between our identities. Are we British? Are we Pakistani? Are we more Pakistani? Are we more British? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I did struggle and I had to navigate through that. Like, you know, my white self, mm-hmm. I do have a white self and I still do. Mm-hmm. And I've never, ever get rid of that. Mm-hmm. That's part of me. Mm-hmm. It's and you know like even because I, I was raised in a Christian nation, Christian practices. I sang hymns mm-hmm. every morning mm-hmm. in school, and mm-hmm. I have a deep bond mm-hmm. with um, Catholicism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. But equally speaking, in my own personal family household, I was raised as a Muslim. Mm-hmm. You know, pre- praying. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taught that. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it it, it meant that you know, it, it for me it meant how do I embrace the bits of Britishness that I want to keep and feel okay in my personality that I can relate to, I feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. and I don't care what anyone you know says about that. Then the parts of me that are more Punjabi mm-hmm. and Pakistani, mm-hmm. and that actually I want to retain that too. Mm-hmm. And it's like the merging of different identities. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is again perhaps a little bit off topic, Dr. Farah, but how mm-hmm. does it feel now to be in, in Pakistan where you seemingly you know, blend in with people and look like everybody else? But do you feel that sense of belonging or you know, are you still feeling conflicted about that? I, I don't know if you if you ever did feel conflicted, that's my word. I don't yeah. think I heard you say that. But no, no. bits of the Britishness that you want to retain and Yeah. I know I think I, and I've had this question before from my own students and trainees, mm-hmm. you know, with, with teaching them, mm-hmm. they would be really surprised mm-hmm. as to, you know, what am I doing here mm-hmm. and um how am I finding you know, adjusting mm-hmm. myself to this environment, to this mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. But I would say, um, I never really came across any conflict as such. I think partly probably because I do feel like I'm in 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 a weird, strange way, I'm home but I'm not home. Mm-hmm. And I think because I've because of certain life experiences um and certain downfalls that I've had, I, I, I'm very reluctant to call any place a permanent home. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think my home is within me my sanctuaries within me and probably that's why when i moved here i could retain some of my psychological identity and my integrity in uh, as me as as myself Mm -hmm. but also try and blend in and navigate and 
So it's about not getting lost in the society that you're in, the difference, mm -hmm. the differences that I have with mm -hmm. this nation. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, because I'm very British as mm -hmm. well. But it's about like how I keep that with me. And I don't, don't need to feel threatened just because I'm in a different, mm -hmm. I can still be myself. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think I'd say this to you, you know, Fatma, if this was 15 years back or 10 mm -hmm. years back. It's because I feel just because of certain life experiences mm -hmm. and challenges and tragedies mm -hmm. that I've gone through, mm -hmm. I, I can safely say that now, mm -hmm. I think, with the age that I'm at and the life stage mm -hmm. I'm at, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Dr. Farah, for sharing. Um, right, so um, I was wondering if you have more to say about, uh, you know, coming back to our Islamophobia thing, and it's always helpful to have um, individual experience and and um, yeah, so maybe you could say a little bit more. Mm -hmm. There was there was a news item that I came across. So this happened in this happened in June um, this year, and it's it was very sad actually. So this was a this was a violent um, incident that happened with somebody called Muhammad Kashif. 32 year old man I believe and he was unfortunately very tragically stabbed by two people um, and as I was reading this it said you know it was because he was wearing traditional Muslim clothing and there were some comments that were directed at him by his attackers uh, such as go back to your country and why do you have this beard mm -hmm. and I think they actually cut part of his beard off in the, in the violent mm -hmm. attack. But I was really sad listening, to, you know, um, reading this because it, it just speaks to how prevalent it still is, um, even with even with um, even with like the diversity we have now in lots in uh, globally. There is so much immigration that's happened in the last, you know, 40, 50 decades that you would think one would think that humanity has come to a point where. You know, but but it's. I think it's never going to end. I think there's always going to be people who perhaps um, come from a place of persecutory anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm saying this is because if we take a very Melanie Klein, and I've mentioned Melanie Klein to our listeners before, but she was a psychoanalyst. Just for new listeners out there, she was a psychoanalyst, um, and she developed this theory about how people can feel. Um, so she developed a theory about how we can feel very anxious. Um, in terms of like, you know, if we, um, if we think we're being attacked by somebody or we're paranoid about certain people, certain groups like groups with beards, um, if we feel like they're, some, they're people who shouldn't be within our vicinity or they shouldn't be where we're living, what, whatever, she would actually argue that it's because um, of anxiety. It's about being worried that one's going to be attacked by this group. So, you know, so, yeah, we, yeah. That, that makes sense. Uh, but I also, you know, I spent a couple of years in Scotland and I found that I didn't experience the kind of um, racial and uh, religious, you know, discrimination in any way. Maybe because I know the Scottish government does a lot of work on diversity and mm -hmm. inclusivity. Mm -hmm. But also I wonder if there's sort of a larger political context here where the Scots have always been um uh, you know discriminated against or there's mm -hmm. uh, there's um they have you know and I, I noticed that whenever i would take the train from edinburgh to london i would notice how just on that train ride like it would get increasingly uncomfortable because you know you'd start in a place where nobody would notice that you're different necessarily in a way that would make you feel like you're out of place but the, as you went further down south that became a lot i became a lot more aware of my own brownness 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's sort of some something about how you know the English, the history of the English, in that, and what mm-hmm. brown people have in their collective. No, no, that's understanding that's right. That. Yeah, no, no, that there is there is a history. So you know how like and the UK is divided by well, if you just look at there's England, Scotland on the north on the top sits on the top, and then you've got on the left hand side you've got Wales, and then of course there's there's uh, Northern Ireland as well that comes into it, but but that's like on an island, so that's a bit away. But in Wales, Welsh and the English, there's a history of them battling with each mm-hmm. other as well. Because when I moved to Wales, I experienced that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just because I was. Like English, mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. I wasn't from Wales, mm-hmm. um, but added to that, it was because I was a female of color. Mm-hmm. That that you know was was a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. But you're quite right that um there is something to do with the Scots and the English, and there's a history between and where there's been rifts and things mm-hmm. like that. But what's a caveat in what you just said is that Scotland is actually um even though now it's like Glasgow is 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 very much full of Indians, Pakistanis, and Sikhs, right? And Edinburgh is as well, but mm-hmm. not. So if you have a look at England, there are a lot of lot more English cities that are ethnically diverse mm-hmm. compared to Scotland. So we would we would actually expect the opposite. We would expect more open mindedness mm-hmm. in English cities mm-hmm. versus Scotland, mm-hmm. because Scotland has much more land mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's full of green hills and things like that, and it doesn't have a lot of major mm-hmm. uh, towns and cities uh, because it's quite mountainous. It's north. It's hilly. Mm-hmm. So and perhaps maybe that's why. Uh, when when immigration did happen, people were able to integrate a little bit better, as opposed to maybe in England where they immigrated in chunks and kind of retained those communities and held on to those. Um, you know, there's some very there are places with a lot of mm-hmm. Pakistani and Indian and Bangladeshi communities that have stayed that way for decades. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, I suppose that's a big question and difficult to answer. Yeah. But um, I thought it would be interesting to share that. Yeah, of course. And uh, just a little snippet of a of a, a funny story. Mm-hmm. When I was in primary school, mm-hmm. um, so this is <laughs> this wasn't malicious in any way because I was only like six or seven. Mm-hmm. But it's a memory. It's a very like vague, fleeting memory. Mm-hmm. But um, my mom decided to pack some gulab jamun <laughs> in my lunchbox. Mm-hmm. So there's me and my sister mm-hmm. were in the dining hall in school, <laughs> little kids, and you know I've got my you know. <laughs> female white friends and male white friends mm. next to us and Hina opens her um, lunchbox and I open my lunchbox and out comes some gulab jamun which went and um, the girl on the table I can't remember who it was now but she said oh that looks like poo <laughs> <laughs> well she didn't know what she was missing out on no she didn't and I think me and my sister were just so mortified we didn't really know what to say I think I think my sister I think said something like what do you mean that's our lunch <laughs> yeah I think children are just a lot more honest about difference um, and you're right it probably wasn't malicious but no, no. that's an interesting story thank you for sharing that <laughs> the other place.